Hi everybody, a different episode today which is hosted by Dr Andrew Perry. Andrew sits down with Dr Nancy Albert of the Cleveland Clinic and discusses how to improve implementation of guideline-directed medical therapy in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Albert. Can I please have you state your name and your title for our listeners? Sure. I'm Nancy Albert. I work at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm an Associate Chief Nursing Officer for Research and Innovation, and I'm also an Advanced Practice Nurse in our Kaufman Center for Heart Failure. Most of my research is focused on patients with heart failure and trying to find new interventions that will help improve morbidity, mortality, and quality of life. Great. And I'm really excited to talk to you today about a very important topic about implementing guideline-directed medical therapy for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, something that you are recognized for in terms of your expertise. So I look forward to getting some pearls from you and your experience and how to uh, better do that for our patients. Great. Now with that, first, let's start off just, you know, we know that guideline directed medical therapy is essential to improving outcomes uh, in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Uh, what's our report card? How well are we doing here in the United States and globally, if you know that information at prescribing you know, medical therapy for HEFRAF? Well, that's actually a really important question. We have four core classes of medications that we use in heart failure ref, and each class is at a different rate in the United States and internationally. For example, evidence-based beta blockers are prescribed most often, and in fact, they're probably at around 90% in the United States, so they're used very well. Renin-angiotensin system agents are used a little less often, around in the 80% range, but importantly, prescriptions of two important classes of medications, uh, Secubitrol valsartan is still below 50%, and that's in that renin-angiotensin system agent class. And uh, of the other two classes, mineral corticoid receptor inhibitors and sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors, they're used about 35% of the time in eligible patients. As a note, I would also add that the other factor to guideline-directed medication therapy is not only to get the right drugs on board, which are these four classes I just mentioned, but we need to prescribe them at the right doses. And we're finding that in the United States and internationally, that's just not happening um, as expected. And so patients may be not on the right drug, and then they also may be very much underdosed. And it really varies from country to country. There are reports in the literature showing beautiful plots of how well we do. And in some countries, we do a little bit better than in others. But by and large, those two classes, sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors and mineral corticoid receptor antagonists are used the less, least often, probably because sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors are newer to us. So we're still getting used to them. Okay. I would suppose that if we talk to most clinicians that they would, even though they would state, you know, they would know that patients would benefit from these medications and would benefit from higher dosages, but yet there's this uh, gap in terms of what people know and then what is actually done. What are some of those barriers towards increasing medication use among this population of patients? Yeah, that, that's very true. We do have a lot of barriers out there. Um, and the barriers can really be put into different buckets. So for example, there is the patient factor bucket. 
Um, adults with heart failure may have comorbid conditions and they may be on 15 or more medications. They may not understand the importance of maintaining the heart failure medications. They may think their rheumatoid arthritis medications, as an example, is more, are more important. Um, and especially if they're feeling fine, if they're not having symptoms or if they're having symptoms, but they don't even recognize these symptoms because they've had them so long, it's like a way of life. They may not believe that it's important to continue taking their medicines. The other thing is some of the drugs are expensive. Um, two of our agents are still uh, not generic. And so they're very costly for patients. Some patients forget to adhere to medications, so it may not be that they purposely are not taking them, but if they have cognitive decline or they're people that are busy and on the go all day, they may simply forget to take their medications, especially if they're greater than once a day agents. Some of our agents are twice a day. Mm -hmm. Another big patient problem is they may fail to keep their office visit um, and they don't realize the value of ensuring the medications are at the right dose. They may have transportation issues. They may have difficulty getting an appointment schedule when they have the time. And thus they end up going for long periods of time without seeing their provider. And then of course, not being placed on the right drugs. Um, and then I'd say the other big problem we have from a patient factor standpoint is that many of our patients do have these comorbid conditions. They may have end-stage kidney disease, um, and so they may not be able to be on all of the medications because of that. Mm -hmm. And it also is true that some providers may be worried even when patients could be on the right medications. And so, for example, patients may have uh, low blood pressure, but it may not be symptomatic. And so we have some provider issues as well. Um, where they may not start a medication or they may stop it prematurely simply because um, they believe that a patient should not be on it. But I would say from a provider standpoint, our biggest problem is probably provider inertia. Um, it really takes time and effort to discuss with a patient why they should be on a medication, get them to understand the value of taking it. And most physicians have very quick turnaround times for appointments. So they really don't have the time to sit down and go into great detail with patients who need that detail. And then I'd say the third big barrier are the systems that we have in place. Um, if the office serves a large population, it may be difficult to get that appointment. I mentioned that earlier. And they may not have virtual visits or telephone visits available to help patients get in touch with their healthcare providers more often. Some people may wait a month to two to three months to see a patient after discharge from a hospital, where the guidelines really encourage it to happen within 14 days so we can get patients on the right drugs at the right dose. So there are a lot of problems in the system that we need to help our patients with. It's not all patients that are the issue. Got it. Now, interesting. I might call out one thing that I, I noticed a, a notable lack of things or, or barriers that you mentioned was, I think, cost from there. Are these other barriers, uh, are they more prevalent? Are they larger issues than the cost issue or where does cost fit into this? Yeah, cost is an interesting issue. There are some research studies out there that discuss that if you do share decision making with a patient, explain to them why you want to put them on a medicine, discuss the cost up front with them, most of them are very willing to go on the medication. We do have to get prior authorizations to get patients on medications that are more costly because that's how our insurance system works in the United States. 
And oftentimes, if a patient cannot afford the their cost for an expensive medication, the drug companies will subsidize it. And so again, it's extra work on the healthcare provider and the team's part, but we can get our patients on the right drugs, um, even if cost is an issue for our patients. Got it. Please rejoin us very shortly after this message from our sponsor. What would you do if you received a complaint from a patient? Did you know that one in four consultants will receive at least one formal complaint during their career? If a patient complains about you, it's important to have professional protection and the support of an expert medico-legal team by your side. What sets medical protection apart is the range of benefits that can assist and protect NHS consultants like you throughout your career. This includes a medico-legal advice line available 24-7 in an emergency. Don't be caught off guard. Get protected from just £549. Join now at medicalprotection.org. Data source MPS January 2023. The likelihood of a consultant non-claims NHS member experiencing a complaint. Cost quoted is the annual membership price for a UK medical consultant working exclusively in the NHS, subject to protection requirements and underwriting approval. Now, with all those barriers that you've highlighted, uh, what are ways that you've found or and others have found to be effective ways to overcome those barriers? Yeah, um, you know, one of the ways is we can encourage our providers to use their electronic medical record in a way that helps uh, create little red flags for them, or maybe even alarms for them to help them understand that it's time to get somebody on a new drug. Um, but we have pill pouches for patients as reminders. We have organizers for patients to help them remember to take their medications. Uh, we can educate family members, counsel them, uh, the loved ones on patients taking their medications on time if that's an issue. But for the system, one of the things we can do is we have advanced practice providers, we have PharmDs that can provide in some states, and these groups of people can be adjunctive to physicians and our uh, medical providers in starting medications, up titrating medications, assessing to make sure that medication is still correct, getting lab work and making sure the kidney function is fine, et cetera, to make sure that our patients are on the right drugs at the right doses for, as an individual. So there are uh, important ways that we can help facilitate getting medication started. Um, I mentioned shared decision-making a few minutes ago, and that's a really powerful tool. It's a conversational tool that can help whoever the provider is to sit down and have a very heart-to-heart uh, -heart talk with patients so that they really understand what's going on and they feel as if they're part of the decision-making process. Whenever we feel we're part of the decision-making process, we're more likely to follow through. Got it. Okay. So what I'm hearing is a main barrier to be able to overcome can be alleviated. Yeah, our main barrier, a way to overcome those barriers could be from spending time with our patients and, and discussing the indications with them. And then also I heard another important part about, you know, uh, leveraging the other uh, resources and other individuals within your institution or outside of your institution, perhaps even uh, in terms of, uh, you know, nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, pharmacists, uh, I probably have left some people out, but in terms of those other groups of people who can help facilitate that implementation. And as you importantly mentioned, the increasing their medications over the long term. Right. 
So then let's maybe have a, a slightly more practical discussion in terms of, you know, we're seeing someone for the first time in, in clinic or perhaps in the hospital. What would be the ideal way to implement uh, heart failure therapies um, in those patients? An initial person, what would be your ideal way to do it? So I could tell you my ideal way, but um, I will just say out there in the literature, there is no one right way to implement guideline-directed medication therapies or medical therapies in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. We have our core four agents plus a loop diuretic if somebody is symptomatic. And right now, the rule of thumb is to get all four drugs on board within four weeks. So um, oftentimes, I will start a patient on a Sucubitra-Valsartan and a beta blocker at the same time, and possibly depend if their blood pressure is high, I'll even start them on a third agent at that same time, um, either the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist or the SGLT2 inhibitor, depending on what's going on with their potassium. So if their potassium is low, I may start them on the MRA, the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist first. Um, if their potassium is high, I may start them on the SGLT2 inhibitor since it causes some diuresis and the patient may lose some potassium that way. So, you know, the goal is to get patients on all of the drugs within four weeks and then maybe within the next month up titrate two of the drugs. Two of the drugs are the dose you start is the dose patients stay on. And so it makes it easier not to have to work to get them on a step system of the right dose. So I think the bottom line is that we just need to get our patients started more quickly and then recognize that once they get started, they must come back for more appointments, at least initially, to get them on the right doses. Um, again, those could be by telephone. They may even be able to be done in a different way, but we need to make sure that happens. When a patient's hospitalized, the 2022 guidelines now actually state in the guidelines that the patients uh, should be placed back on the medications that they came in on. Um, and if they were not placed on the right guideline-directed medication therapies, that they should be on at least three of those therapies before discharge. And then the last drug would be added at the first outpatient appointment, assuming patients meet the criteria to be placed on that medication. So again, there's no one right way, but I think the bigger comment right now is we need to pick up the pace of getting these drugs started. In the old days, it would maybe take us six months to get patients on three classes of medications. Now we have four classes and we're saying do it in one month. That's a huge turnaround from previous communication. Sure. Yeah, no, it is. And, and probably, uh, it'll take a bit for that to take some time for that culture to change, but hopefully there's ways to change that culture faster. Yeah. Which brings me, I think to my last question in terms of, I think you'd call this implementation science, but you know, what are the sort of advances yeah. that are being done within research by you or by others that we can look forward to in terms of advancing this field and understanding how to better, you know, implement these measures? Yeah, there is a lot going on. And I think there is some research out there to help us figure out what are the best ways to get patients on board, get providers on board as well. Um, so again, I really believe that medication initiation and up titration can be managed by trained heart failure advanced practice nurses and PharmDs with prescription privileges. Um, these are for the patients who have active heart failure, but they're not up and down in terms of decompensation. And so we need to take advantage of um, these uh, adjunct providers that work with physicians so that physicians could spend their time dealing with the complexity of heart failure in patients with advanced heart failure. 
Um, I think we need to think about the fact that appointments do not always need to be in person. And eventually we may even really want to push for our patients to manage themselves. In other words, um, when I start a new drug, I would say to the patient, in two weeks, I want you to increase the dose to this. And in another two weeks, increase the dose to that. We do this all the time in other medical conditions, whether it's gout or um, diabetes or COPD. We tell patients what to do and how to do it, and then we let them be in control of their health. But for some reason in heart failure, we haven't gotten there yet. And I think that'll be coming up down the road if we really want to make sure our patients are doing the right thing. Um, the other thing is, is that we do know that some of these medications can change potassium levels, change creatinine levels, renal function, and EGFR. And so we need to make sure our patients are having lab work done intermittently. Um, and again, it could be any nurse that assesses that lab work, calls up the patient to remind them that the lab work is waiting and needs to be done, and then get back with the patient and communicate with them. So I think we need education materials for patients to help them understand the importance of taking the right drugs at the right doses and why they need to come back in. I think we need other adjunct providers to help um, our physician providers really do the right thing so that everybody could raise the bar for us and her failure management. Well, this has been a great discussion. I think a lot of uh, a lot of very useful pearls and a lot of wisdom and uh, an exciting area. And I appreciate your leadership in the field and, and for all the knowledge that you've uh, shared with us. Thanks for having me today. Glad to be here. What would you do if you received a complaint from a patient? Did you know that one in four consultants will receive at least one formal complaint during their career? If a patient complains about you, it's important to have professional protection and the support of an expert medico-legal team by your side. What sets medical protection apart is the range of benefits that can assist and protect NHS consultants like you throughout your career. This includes a medico-legal advice line available 24-7 in an emergency. Don't be caught off guard. Get protected from just £549. Join now at medicalprotection.org. Data source MPS January 2023. The likelihood of a consultant non-claims NHS member experiencing a complaint. Cost quoted is the annual membership price for a UK medical consultant working exclusively in the NHS, subject to protection requirements and underwriting approval.